This is VLX number 140, Lament Over Jerusalem. We are in Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 to 39. VLX stands for Video Lexi Divina, your patristic Bible study and Ignatian prayer series online. God give you his peace, in nomine patris, et fidi, et spiritus sancti, amen. God, our Lord, we ask the grace that all of our intentions, actions, and operations be directed purely to the service and praise of your divine majesty. In nomine patris et spiritus sancti, amen. Our Lord says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Thus are the words of the Holy Gospel. So it's 2023, if you're listening to this in real time, and as you know, there is a lot of debate on if Catholics should support Israel in all of the heat of the Middle East right now. Now, I will admit, as we talk about who we will call um, the tribe, we have to watch the algorithms on YouTube. I think you know what I mean by the tribe. They comprise the most powerful elite in the world, Rockefellers, Rothschilds, the people pulling the switches behind the scenes. But this tribe is also the bloodline that Jesus came from, so we want to be respectful. So if you look at today's gospel, Jesus is weeping specifically over his own tribe out of love because he wanted to save them, and they are rejecting him, much like how they rejected all the prophets of the Old Testament, even as he, Jesus, who is God, sent them. So you just have to think on how they treated, say, Isaiah or Jeremiah. Now, of course, after Jesus' death and resurrection, St. Paul has his conversion, he's baptized, and then in the book of Romans, he's looking at the tribe he came from, but also this new batch of Christians, uh, some of whom were Jews, some Gentiles. And this is this, uh, well, I should just say tribe and Gentiles because of the YouTube algorithms. And these are all coming in to be baptized. And then they comprise one body of Christ. But because St. Paul does not believe in a once saved, always saved theology, He's very clear in Romans and other books that Christians who are of Gentile blood or blood of the tribe can lose their salvation even after baptism by how? By rejecting Jesus through their sins, just as those of the tribe flat out reject the Messiah. And this is why the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is weeping over them for rejecting him today, specifically the city of Jerusalem. But the reason I'm mentioning St. Paul before we look at the gospel today is to show you first that baptism is necessary for salvation, but it doesn't guarantee salvation, especially if one continues to reject Jesus through his or her sins following baptism. St. Paul writes, What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. End quote. 
Now, of course, St. Paul's not saying that the Ten Commandments are opposed to living by faith, as most Protestants today insist. St. Paul is saying that the Jews believing the 613 mitzvot, that's those smaller rules in books like Leviticus, things like not eating shellfish, will save you. Of course, that's wrong. They will not save you. The 613 mitzvot, that was just part of this time out that God had to put the Jews in because they weren't evangelizing the nations. In fact, it says in Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 25, the laws I gave you were not good. Now, that doesn't mean God can do something evil. It just means these were concessionary laws. But the New Testament still holds to the Ten Commandments. That's why in Matthew 19, we saw the young man come up to Jesus. What must I do to be saved? Jesus' very first answer to him is keep the commandments. So the Protestants who say you don't have to keep the commandments to be saved, they go directly against Jesus' first answer to the young man, the rich young man who says to Jesus in Matthew 19, what must I do to be saved? Jesus says, keep the commandments. Now, he's again, he's not talking about the 613 mitzvot, those very small aspects of the law. Those aspects won't save, especially not without faith, in the one Messiah sent to them, the tribe, who is Jesus Christ. And, of course, this was the same Messiah sent to the Gentiles. In fact, that idea of getting the little things right, but the big things wrong, is exactly what Jesus said in the last VLX to the Pharisees when he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. And so St. Paul continues in Romans 11 that the tribe was cut off because of unbelief, but the new Christians can reject him, Jesus, too, if they don't persevere. Listen, they were broken off, talking about the tribe, they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you, he's talking about anyone who was just baptized, whether from the tribe or Gentiles, but you must stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. He means fear God. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he means the the tribe there, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. So right there again, this overturns this Protestant idea of once saved, always saved. And again, I use that term, the tribe, that is, those that associate with the uh, Star of David, to just not trip up the algorithms on YT. And by the way, that uh, Star of David as their symbol, that was really only taken since the 18th or 19th century. So is being a member of the tribe a sufficient place for salvation? Well, the Vatican II documents imply, yes, they are. But that's an error, not only in the implementation of Vatican II, but it's even an error in the documents of Vatican II. It's in Nostra Aetate implies that being a member of the tribe is a sufficient place for salvation. That is false. That's a heresy. It's an error. Because St. Paul just explained in Romans chapter 9 and chapter 10 and in 11 that they are not in a sufficient place for salvation. In fact, they've been cut off from the one true tree, which is Yahweh, which is Jesus Christ. And they have to be grafted on how? Through baptism. But here's where we, we as traditional Catholics can't get prideful against the tribe. It's because right there we heard St. Paul telling these new Catholics, these new Christians, you can't become proud against the tribe or you're going to get cut off. Not because really the tribe is so special anymore, but because pride can lead 
any of us away from Christ even when we're right on our theology. Did you ever think about that? Lucifer fell knowing the truth, but letting it get to his head. And I try to keep that in mind myself when I'm prideful about something I know I'm right on in all of these debates on church reform and the church crisis. I have to remember, even though I very much believe I have the evidence on a lot of these things that most Catholics don't get, my pride might repel God. So that doesn't mean I turn my back on the evidence of certain things in the, in the church crisis. I just have to be more humble about it. So please pray for my humility. Again, I'm not doubting that traditional Catholics are right, especially as everything is getting unveiled in Rome right now. But I do know my pride on some things is not pleasing to God. Okay, what does this have to do with today's gospel, especially the St. Paul stuff? Well, it shows that Jesus truly loved the tribe he came from and that we traditional Catholics can't live in an attitude of being against the tribe, even if that doesn't mean, even that even if that means we should push for refraining from nuclear weapons. We don't want to go to war. We don't need to see world war. And we can still recognize that uh, there's Rockefellers and Rothschilds in charge of, um, well, the elite that are controlling so much of the evil in the world. But we still have to pray for everyone's salvation. Okay, so what does Jesus say about his own bloodline? Listen again to today's gospel. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Christ recognizes that they're rejecting him, but he loves them enough to weep over them. In today's gospel, why does Jesus say the name of the city Jerusalem twice in his lament over her? Father Lapide writes, He repeats Jerusalem twice to express the depth of his grief and compassion. It is as though he said, O Jerusalem, city of God, chosen by him and beloved above all other cities, which he has adorned with so many graces and benefits, the law, the temple, priesthood, doctrine, enriched with a kingdom, prophet, prophets, miracles, Thou hast always been ungrateful for all these things. Thou hast slain the prophets, and soon thou wilt kill me and my apostles. Wherefore, thou hast become a wicked and lost city, destined by God to be destroyed and burnt by the Romans. By city, the inhabitants, especially the priests and magistrates, who chiefly were guilty of the blood of the prophets are meant. That killeth the prophets, St. Luke says that Christ added, it cannot be that a prophet perish outside of Jerusalem. It was the appropriate work of, Ju of Jerusalem to kill the prophets. How often have I wished, formerly by the prophets and now by myself and my apostles, to gather into my bosom to bring back to the one God and the one faith thy sons, that is, thy citizens who are scattered unto various errors and are hurling themselves into the perils of Gehenna for nothing disperses like sin, and nothing so gathers us to God as virtue. So then Jesus says in verse 37, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. So why does Jesus compare himself to a hen? Well, Father Lapide writes, The word in the Greek for hen is ornis, which is a generic name for any bird, but the Vulgate does well to translate it by galena, a hen. For as St. Augustine says, it is wonderful what love almost all birds, but especially the hen, 
show in cherishing and protecting their young. When a hen is in any peril which threatens herself alone as from a kite or a cat or dog, she flees. But if she fears danger for her young ones, she gathers them under her wings and strives to protect them by every means in her power. She will often fight for them with her wings, her beak, and her whole body. So Christ fought for us against the devil and sin unto death, even the death of the cross. And ye would not, because you will pursue me with hatred even unto death, and will not suffer your citizens to be converted unto me and your God. This, as I have already observed, is especially addressed to the scribes and rulers. Thus Christ gathered all nations, like a hen her chickens, who became weak for our sakes, receiving flesh from us, that is, from our human nature, was crucified, despised, slapped with the hand, beaten, hung on a cross, wounded with a lance. Therefore this is of maternal infirmity, not loss of majesty, that inasmuch as he shared with us in our infirmity, he might release us from our sins. That same St. Augustine says, on the words of the 91st Psalm, Thou shalt be safe under his feathers. If a hen protects her young ones under wings, how much rather shalt thou be safe under the wings of God against the devil and his angels who fly round about like hawks, that they may carry off the young chickens? Now let's look at verse 38. Jesus says to the tribe his human bloodline came from, See, your house is left to you desolate. What does this mean? Well, Father Lapide partially quotes St. Jerome as he writes, The city of Jerusalem and the whole region of Judea, which as the punishment of such black ingratitude was to be laid waste by the Romans under Titus. There's an allusion to this in Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 7, which reads, I have left my house, I have forsaken my inheritance. For when Jerusalem was forsaken by God, it became the synagogue of Satan, and so the prey of the Roman eagles under Titus and Vespasian who partly slew the tribe and partly led them away captive and partly scattered them over the whole world. And of course, that explains the tribe today all over the whole world. Okay, the last verse today, verse 38, when our Lord says, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, Father Lapide says this is as though Christ had said, You, O ye scribes, who constantly contradict and calumniate me, saying that I am not the Messiah, but that I cast out devils by Beelzebub, shall not see me from by and by, that is, after the few days before my death, in which I shall be conversant among you until the judgment day, when ye shall be compelled, even against your will, to acknowledge me as Messiah, the Son of God, and your judge, as well as the judge of all men. Of course, these are harsh words, meaning that even those in hell will see Jesus as the Messiah up in heaven. But Father Lapide does not leave uh, the tribe without hope here, for we know a large number of the tribe will enter the Catholic Church at the end of the world when the Antichrist is on the scene just before Jesus returns in glory. And this is why Father Lapide writes on today's section, it is possible that this passage may be understood of the tribe who about the end of the world shall be converted to Christ by the preaching of Elias, and who, when he shall presently come to judgment, will acknowledge him to be Messiah, the blessed of the Lord. As though he said, You, O ye tribe, do not wish to acknowledge me as Messiah and persecute me as a false Christ, even unto death, but your posterity in the end of the world will acknowledge and worship me on them therefore. I will bestow my grace and my glory. 
Now, speaking of the Antichrist, will he show up at the end of time in Rome or Jerusalem? Most of the church fathers say Jerusalem, but one, maybe two, say Rome. You might be surprised at this, but I kind of side with the minority opinion on this one. I'm leaning towards Rome, uh, specifically the main temple in Rome. I think most of you know what that means. Now, whether the final Antichrist sits himself in Jerusalem or Rome, listen to this, what St. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Okay, now I wrote a blog post that I'm going to link in the show notes called Who is the Man of Lawlessness? Specifically about this section in Thessalonians. In that blog, I write, in verse 4, the Greek states that the lawless, not, lawless one will sit, kathisai, that's the root of the English cathedral, sit in the temple of God, there he will exhibit himself to be God. All of this clearly portends not only the hijacking of the seat of a religious center, but also the usurping of her doctrine. Most of the early fathers believed this passage would take place in Jerusalem, but a few fathers believed it would take place in Rome. Okay, everybody, now listen to this. In his recent, this is still my blog, in his recent video between minute 21 and 22, Archbishop Vigano says there already exists this evil person doing a coup d'etat against the throne of Peter. His words, not mine. So I link that Vigano video, it's actually wound up to the 21-minute timestamp. That is linked in the blog that I'm going to link. I'm not going to link the video, but I'm going to link my blog that has a link of the video where Vigano explains that that prophet of the Antichrist is already going to the throne of Peter. In fact, Archbishop Vigano explains that he believes this was set in motion with the removal of Pope Benedict XVI and all the pressure against him to resign. Now, why was there all this pressure to resign? I'm not sure I have thought this through as much as Archbishop Vigano, but he says he believes this was specifically due to Pope Benedict XVI's motor proprio, Samorum Pontificum, which, as you all know, allowed any of us priests to offer the Latin Mass if we wanted to. And that document also gave us permission to do all the other ancient six sacraments, six sacraments, blessings, exorcisms, and sacramentals. It also makes sense to me that the New Covenant would be overturned in Rome in the same way the Old Covenant was overturned in Jerusalem. Think of what Father Lapide just said about how Jesus saw Jerusalem, and you could almost apply this to the current crisis in Rome. Father Lapide wrote, he has adorned this city with so many graces and benefits, the law, the temple, priesthood, doctrine, enriched with a kingdom, prophets, miracles. Yet you have always been ungrateful for all these things. Of course, for Rome, it's a very recent ungratefulness, probably lasting only 100 years. But God doesn't owe anything to any city just because he sent them the law, the temple, priesthood, doctrine, a kingdom, prophets, and miracles, especially when they become ungrateful for their tradition. And of course, Our Lady of La Salette said Rome would lose the faith and become the seat of the Antichrist. Not my words, but hers. By the way, some people criticize me for not being more direct on what I'm getting at here, what I'm implying here. And yeah, I am implying certain things without being direct. Uh, now, albeit from a great distance, distance, I am trying to follow Jesus here who spoke in code to keep his mission going a little longer before the authorities caught him. So also I speak in code to milk my mission a little bit longer. It doesn't mean I'm dishonest. It just means that 
For those who have ears to hear, they will hear the truth. At least the evidence that I'm laying down. I'm not saying I have some monopoly on the truth, but the truth is always um, enlightened by evidence. But even many traditional Catholics who don't believe me on the papacy agree the current situation in Rome is worth weeping over. Yes, just like Jerusalem, it is also worth visiting and rejoicing with. I've been to both places in the last couple months, uh, perhaps more because of their past than their present. You know, I was in Rome briefly just a few weeks ago, actually, but a longer stay in 2016. And after returning to the United States in 2016, I was thinking about Rome, and I wrote a blog post called On Eternal Rome. I don't think many people read it because my blog wasn't too read at that point, but I am going to link it in the show notes because it's kind of one of those blogs. I don't think I wrote a lot of important blogs, but that's maybe one of the important ones that almost nobody read. Because already in 2016, I saw the tremendous evil coming out of Rome. And so I'm going to read you a couple sentences I wrote in that blog. I wrote, I have been to Rome about five times, but I haven't been there in seven years. I arrived with the hopes of finding St. Putin's, it's a church, but ignoring St. Peter's. I was literally afraid to look at the Vatican with all the stuff coming out of it these days. And by the way, I wrote this in 2016. But that first night in Rome, when my priest friend and I came around the corner and saw the Vatican lit up at night, I literally fell to my knees at the sight of it, praising and thanking God for the church. Okay, then in that blog, I add why I love that city so much. I write, I know Christ tells us to not be seen praying in public, but it was dark that night on the Tiber and few could see me. Kneeling, I asked my Australian priest friend, who studies there in Rome, if I could pray for the church there for a minute. He said yes and put his hand on my shoulder. I had definitely not planned this. That enormous, glorious building that I had planned on not looking at, as if pouting, completely overwhelmed me with the sense of the glory of over 250 popes and martyrs shining through it and all around it that night. I felt God transmitting to me a confidence in his church in an overwhelming feeling of his power. Then my last paragraph reads in that blog, which again I'll link in the notes. We returned home, but the priest with whom I stayed in Rome had a spectacular view of the whole city from his roof at night. This overwhelming feeling of God's power strangely continued every time I went up the roof over those two weeks to pray whenever I looked at St. Peter's lit. Every time I looked at the shimmering, shining, solid St. Peter's at night, I did not see an individual pope like I thought I would see. I saw my bride adorned with the blood of thousands of Roman men and women who died, in some sense, for me to have the fullness of faith. I saw that building every dark Roman night like a new Jerusalem already on earth, transcending certain individuals with that faith that I love so much, uniting apostolic succession and extraordinary charisms in her saints, charged with the very glory of the crucifixion. Okay, so so much today for Rome and Jerusalem. We're going to wrap this up. Last thing I want to say on today's podcast, VLX 140, really has nothing to do with today's gospel passage. I just want to talk about all these different options for Catholic mental prayer, especially the ones people can learn online. And the third link I'm going to put in my show notes, it's about another program of mental prayer besides my own. Now, let me say this before I get into this other program that we have to rip on. I don't mind so-called competition because we're all Catholics teaching others how to pray. But there is a big problem in that app called Hallow, H-A-L-L-O-W. 
You see, the Hallow app is the most popular Catholic prayer app. It's exponentially bigger than my little VLX series here. So they, they wouldn't even consider me a competition. I shouldn't have even used that word. But they have a new C.S. Lewis prayer series on that app featuring Liam Neeson, who is pro, another algorithm thing, I have to spell this out, A-B-O-R-T-I-O-N. Uh, we'll just call it slaughter. Pro slaughter. Now, Liam Neeson, of course, he's a great actor in that 1980s movie about the 17th century Jesuit missions called The Mission. I even liked him in the Star Wars prequels that nobody else liked, but he's very anti-Catholic. He's a very anti-Catholic Irishman, and he is pro-slaughter, thinks it should be legal there in Ireland, which it already is, sadly. So the third link I'm going to put in the show notes is a blog called Catholic Arena, and this reports on the Hallow app hiring Liam Neeson. That, that link reads, In an unusual move... Hallow has hired a fierce critic of Catholicism and a keen supporter of slaughter, Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson was a prominent campaigner for slaughter, A-B-O-R-T-I-O-N, in Ireland in 2018, something which he tied in with criticism of Catholicism. The ad, created by Amnesty International, was dripping in anti-Catholic and anti-Irish imagery, suggesting that Catholicism was a darkness which haunts this land, implying that allowing babies to be killed in the womb would be the only remedy, end quote. So that quote is by Catholic Arena, talking about how the Hallow app hired uh, Liam Neeson. And my mom's four grandparents are from Ireland, so it's very sad for me to read, especially. I think the Catholic Arena comes from Ireland. Okay, so all this, why am I talking about this? Because it goes to show that if your theology holds that the end justifies the means, it's even going to affect your prayer life. And this is why the Hallow app, yeah, it might have a lot of people learning the basics of mental prayer, but imagine 99% orange juice and 1% cyanide given to a parched man in the desert. It will still kill him. In other words, a prayer app can be very emotionally pleasing, but not based entirely on truth. Faith is the foundation of the three theological virtues. Faith is the only entry point to hope and charity. And so what I'm saying here is that you should only trust your prayer life to Christ and traditional Catholicism, not modernist Catholicism, because the latter apparently has no problem promoting a pro-A-B-O-R-T as Hallow is doing. 99% orange juice and 1% cyanide will still kill you. And if, if you think this is just about devotion... Think of how real A-B-O-R-T-I-O-N is. Really how blind they are to hire a person promoting this. So you don't have to do my series, but I suggest you don't do anything modern that is basically a mix of Catholicism and Protestantism and this culture of death. And it's also why I'm against the chosen, because a little poison ruins the whole batch. How do I keep my series so pure? It's just because I don't use new stuff. It doesn't mean I'm holy or smart. It just means I don't add secularism or Protestantism. I just read you the Fathers, which is pretty boring, pretty non-creative, but I trust them more than Liam Neeson. Okay, so finally, let me just say, here's the summary of the three links in my show notes that you're going to find. One, my blog, Who is the Man of Lawlessness, with that link to Archbishop Vigano's video suggesting the forerunner to the Antichrist may already be in the Vatican. Two, my blog called On Eternal Rome, explaining why you can sense the faith of countless saints and martyrs still in Rome and even the Vatican that goes so much deeper than this current church crisis. And the third thing linked in my show notes today is Catholic Arena discussing the, the Hallow App's new hire. Thanks to all my benefactors, spiritual and material. 
As you know, my only income comes from you, my listeners. You keep this free for everyone who can't donate. I remember both groups at my masses. Please say an Our Father for me at Benedictio de Omnipotentis, Patris et Fidi et Spiritus Santi, Descendet Super Vos et Maniat Semper. Amen.